Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the Radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered. It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional media covering this new faces of Boston. You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the radar means ahead of the curve. It's also perspectives. How does this particular story affect a community or a neighborhood? I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, April 4th marked the 50th anniversary of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination. This year, we spoke with scholars, admirers, and activists around the country and the world who are acting on the legacy of Reverend King five decades after his death. This week, and for the final installment of our series, we'll discuss how Dr. King's vision is being carried on by a new generation. Later in the show, the Montgomery bus boycott catapulted Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. onto the national civil rights stage in 1955. But in the years immediately before, MLK was just a man living in Boston, studying for his Ph.D., playing basketball at local parks and going on dates with his future wife, Coretta. Martin Luther King Jr.'s little-known Boston years. But first, joining me in the studio, Alexandra Oliver Davila, the executive director of Sociedad Latina, Boston's oldest youth Latina organization. This year, she was named one of Boston's 100 Most Influential People of Color by Get Connected. Welcome, Alexandra. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming. And joining me from Elite Music Studios in Miami, Florida, Rachel Gilmer, co-director of the Florida-based human rights organization Dream Defenders. Hello, Rachel. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm very glad to have you as well. Let's begin this way. I'd like both of you to tell me what you think Martin Luther King's legacy means to you personally and then to your organizations. Um, I'll start with you, Alexandra. Sure. Um, Personally, for me, Martin Luther King Jr. represents someone who is grounded in social justice. And as a person, I I was born in the United States, but I came um, to this country when I was um, five years old because I left when I was six months old. And I moved to Mexico and to Argentina. I actually came at seven, not five. Um, and as a person who who came to the States and actually experienced what it was to be an English language learner, and at that time there was no such thing as immersion, um, you know, any kind of resources for uh, any immigrants coming in and speaking another language. It was a sink or swim. And then moving to the Boston area in middle school and just experiencing many, you know, racist incidents, um, I think... Between uh, that, those experiences and also my mother was very grounded in, in social justice and what was happening in Latin America. And so I find a lot of correlations in uh, similar struggles. I think sometimes we think um, of the civil rights movement as very black and white. And if we look at the history of Latin America, South America, the Caribbean, um, and and Latinos within the United States, there's so many uh, similar struggles. And so... For me, his legacy really 
speaks to me in terms of the social justice pieces um, and really making sure that all of us are included in representation, in decision-making tables, et cetera. And to you, Rachel? Yeah, I mean, I think, wow, just, you know, sacrifice, what it really means to commit your life to struggle and commit to your life to bringing together people um, to resist together across race, across class, and really in the wake of so much injustice to be able to imagine a world beyond that injustice and to wake up every day and fight for it, just what an inspiration. And I think I've been thinking lately a lot about Dr. King's, you know, Beyond Vietnam speech, which was his speech he came out and gave around being outspoken against the Vietnam War and the, and the backlash that he had um, and many civil rights leaders had um, received for being outspoken against Vietnam. And um, just, you know, in the speech he talks about y- you do what is not always seen as like popular, but you do it because it's right. Um, And I think Dr. King was just always committed to doing what was right and did so even in the face of backlash. And, you know, thinking about Dream Defenders, Dream Defenders, you know, was founded after the killing of Trayvon Martin, um, brought, you know, young people came together from across the state to demand justice in Trayvon's killing. We were sort of founded in this moment around Trayvon, but very quickly began to see that what had happened to Trayvon was way bigger than Trayvon and it was connected to injustices all around the world. And we became very outspoken around around Palestine. One of our co-founders is Palestinian. And there were many people who responded to that by saying, whoa, we thought y'all were just gonna focus on civil rights issues impacting black people. Now that you're speaking out against Palestine, like we're uncomfortable with that. And so we faced a lot of backlash in the face of that. And it was really scary. And at times we wondered, are we doing the right thing? And it was actually leaning back on Dr. King's legacy and actually seeing that black leaders who have pushed beyond the narrow confines that have been constructed for them and black leaders who have been outspoken around injustices happening all around the world, including Dr. King's, um, what he said about Vietnam and the work he did around Vietnam. Like that has always been uncomfortable to folks in the middle and to liberals. And I think that that is part of what kept Dream Defenders continuing to fight and continuing to speak out against issues, even when people were uncomfortable with them, was remembering that that's exactly what Dr. King did. And that's exactly what made him so powerful. Well, both of your organizations, Rachel, yours in Florida and Alexandra's here in Boston, focus on young people and getting them to understand what it means to be a part of a social justice organization and how to organize on behalf of their communities, which, of course, was a a huge part of what was happening in the civil rights movement that uh, Dr. King uh, was leading. And I wanted to take a listen to uh, Coretta Scott King. She addressed the Harvard class of 1968 because this was after he was assassinated. And her emphasis really was on looking forward toward other generations as her husband had. So here's Coretta Scott King addressing the Harvard class of 1968 in place of her husband. There is reason to hope and to struggle if young people continue to hold high the banner of freedom. They have made mistakes and will make more. But the older generation has failed America dismally, and if it is discredited, it has earned its disrepute. It is time for both fresh ideas and new leadership to come forth 
because without it, our society is on sinking sand. And again, that was Coretta Scott King in uh, 1968. So I want to uh, give people a chance to understand exactly how both your organizations work. Um, give me a sense, Alexandra, of how you work with the young people. Um, sure. We start working uh, with young people as early as six years old, and they are able to be in an array of programs, and we focus on academic support, arts and culture, um, work readiness, and civic engagement, and those threads run throughout our organization. We focus heavily if we look at the percentage of uh, Latinos that drop out of school and if we look at other percentages that really show that uh, lifetime outcomes in terms of uh, being able to be self-sufficient are a little scary. So we really focus on that piece. But I would say that the thread that runs strongest, um, clearest, and we're most passionate about is our civic engagement. So we work with young people around how to actually identify issues that are happening in the community. So, for example, this past year, um, there has been a lot of violence in our uh, neighborhood, um, and we're located in Mission Hill Roxbury, which is often thought of as you know, very safe because we have all these college students, et cetera. Um, But there is a lot of violence happening in our neighborhood. And so our young people came together, called a community meeting, um, invited community stakeholders from all over the neighborhood and facilitated a meeting so that we could get back with our neighborhood and figure out how we could all work together because, you know, as neighborhoods go, we're not, it's not unusual to have different pieces of the neighborhood. Um, And so bringing people together, um, working with the police department, working with the city, working with the street workers, um, et cetera. So we feel that it's fantastic, you know, to work on high school graduation and post-secondary steps, no doubt about that. But if we do not actually work with our young people around social justice issues, being able to identify what is happening in your community and what you can do about it and how your voice has an impact and why is it important for you to actually participate and have a voice, then we feel that our mission is lost. Because if we look around Boston, we have severe issues around representation. We look at every sector and we can see that there are no Latinos at decision-making tables and leadership roles. And we know that that is going to be a game changer. And we know, especially in government, policies are made without the voice of Latinos. And those policies impact our community. And so our mission is, again, to make sure that young people leave our organization and that they feel that they have the skills, they have the tools, and that they feel that they Mm. actually deserve to have a voice. Because oftentimes, you know, our communities... Young people are dismissed. Right. Yeah. Not mm-hmm. only just young people, mm-hmm. but, you know, if you're an immigrant, if mm-hmm. you have an accent and all of these things, um, that we are part of the community and we have a voice and we have something to say and we can actually make a difference. That's my guest, Alexandra Oliver Davila, the executive director of Sociedad Latina, Boston's oldest youth Latino organization. Let's take a listen from one of uh, your young people. Uh, here's a testimony about what he's learning about social justice and organizing. I used to think that being a leader was, you know, give orders, but without listening to the people. But um, being a youth leader showed me that as a leader, you have to listen to the people, what they are saying, and then take action. So um, that's the work on the ground, which was very much a part of Dr. Martin Luther King's legacy. 
Uh, Rachel, same thing is happening in Dream Defenders. You're grassroots with young people doing the work that you described a little bit earlier. And I want to take a listen from a video, which uh, is an excerpt that talks about what you all actually do. The other side said we're too radical. Because we believe everybody should have access to health care. Because we think one job should be enough to pay your bills. Because no one's future should be determined by a zip code. We're called too radical because... We don't want to be shot dead by police. Because we believe making a profit out of caging people is wrong. And if wanting basic rights makes us too radical... I'll be that. So again, those are young voices. How are you working with them? So as I said, Dream Defenders was founded after Trayvon was killed, and we um, occupied the Florida State Capitol for 31 days, demanding a special session on Stand Your Ground, which was the policy that led to George Zimmerman, his killer, getting acquitted. And what we saw by occupying the Capitol is that there were so many political actors in Tallahassee, our capital, that were really running our state. Stand Your Ground itself was a policy that came from ALEC, you know, this corporate bill mill that brings together corporations and politicians to push policies that, you know, make them profits while hurting our communities. Stand Your Ground is also an NRA-backed bill. And what we saw was that, you know, young people were flooding the capital, not only in Florida, but were rising up all across the country. And still George Zimmerman was acquitted. And still we didn't get a special session on Stand Your Ground. That really awakened us to the kind of the hold on our political system that these big corporations have um, and that they use to push their agenda. And that ultimately that leads to a system where young people's lives go completely disregarded so that a few people people in our society can make millions and millions and millions of dollars. So, you know, we saw that sort of awakening again happen this year when young people rose up in Florida after the tragic shooting and really came out and said, how is it that our politicians are sitting here and continuing to take money from the NRA and continuing to look us in the face and say they're going to continue to take money from these weapons manufacturers while young people are literally being killed because of it? And so really the movement that we're trying to build, we're bringing young people together to build power so that we can flip that dynamic and ensure that our voices are are what's driving the political decision and that we have determination and say over our lives and that these corporations aren't able to continue to build a Florida that works for them while our lives are going completely disregarded. That's my guest, Rachel Gilmer. She's co-director of the Florida-based human rights organization, Dream Defenders. And if you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, and I'm Callie Crossley. So I want you both to respond to this. The the rap on young people, and, and, and that's who you deal with uh, primarily, is that they can be interested for a short time in maybe hashtag activism. We send a hashtag, we say we're mad about something, and then, you know, two days later, a week later, they've disappeared into the ether. And there is not the kind of, some people say, uh, long-term, ongoing commitment to these hard issues that will not be solved in a day or two or a month or even a series of sit-ins, but just take, keep coming back, keep coming back, keep coming back. Is that fair criticism from what you've seen, Alexandra? Of course, I've I've seen and heard that, um, but I would also defend young people just in my own experience. We work with young people anywhere from seven to 10 years, and I think it's our responsibility as adults to continue to engage them in ways that are interactive and fun and hands-on. 
And so I think the attention span piece can be part of that. And so that's why we, in our civic engagement programming, we use a lot of arts and culture. So it is, um, you know, the video pieces, young people get excited about writing the script, filming the video, acting in it. We've done murals. So I think using arts and culture, using social media, our young people are constantly, you know, tweeting on Instagram and they are talking about the issues they're working on a current platform um, to So push. you would reject that, that they're you know, I, I only would, temporarily I interested? Re- I would reject that they're mm-hmm. only temporarily mm-hmm. interested, and especially when I look at the young people that I work with, they know that they're affected in every single part of their life, whether it's in education, whether it's walking home and, and being harassed, whether it's you know the neighborhood not having resources. So they're very well aware of what's happening, and so therefore they have you know a stake in the ground for what's going to happen to them and their future and, um, and their future children. Uh, Rachel? You know, I think young people are incredibly powerful, And the people and institutions who perpetuate the idea that we're complacent, that we're interested one day and uninterested next, are actually the people who are most scared of what young people have to offer. And they're putting out those narratives about young people because they want us to internalize them and then actually believe those narratives about ourselves so that we underestimate our own power. Because I think those institutions actually don't want us to be powerful. They're afraid of what happens when young people rise up. And so they want to send us the message that we're complacent so that we don't do the very thing that they don't want us to do, which is rise up and take over. I think our organization, we're going into our seventh year of existence. That's a sign that young people are building things and that young people aren't fly-by-the-night activists, but that we are deeply committed to the organization that we're building. We're deeply committed to the movement we're a part of, and we're deeply committed to change. Our organization is just one example of organizations all across the country that have been built for generations, um, led by young people who are deeply, deeply, deeply committed to struggle. And I think, you know, one of the problems with the way that the, that the Parkland shooting was talked about in the mainstream media is that they talked about these activists as if they were an overnight phenomenon. But the reality is, those young people, they were in elementary and middle school when Trayvon Martin happened. And they saw other young people like them who took over the Florida Capitol, our organization. That had to have deeply impacted their ability when the Parkland shooting happened to take that tragedy and turn it into a movement just like we did with Trayvon. So all of that is deeply connected and is a sign that young people are building that these things don't happen in silos, but they're a reflection of the deep commitment that young people have to struggle and the organizations that we're building that are really in it for the long run. When we talk about carrying on the torch, the commitment torch, the advocacy torch, the activist torch from Martin Luther King as part of his legacy 50 years after his assassination, is it best, have you found ways to do it differently than I would say legacy organizations? I mean, to some extent, Alexandra, uh, you're uh, a part of a legacy founded in 1968, but your young people are not from that time. And they're not expecting, you know, they look at things totally differently. Uh, So I'm wondering if the ways of protest and organizing, you have to come at it a completely different way and they receive it differently because what happened in the legacy way just is not effective anymore with these young people. Yeah, I mean, I think we do what we've always done, which is hear the voices of young people. So our job is... 
around working with young people to understand what is organizing and looking at previous organizing efforts um, and what those leaders and community stakeholders did to organize. And we leave it to the young people to figure out the avenues and the ways that they want to organize. So we've done things like flash mobs, you know, mm. that that speaks to them. Mm. Um, we've done taken over the park and done drumming circles and that speaks to them. So I think for us, it's really meeting and hearing how they want it to look like versus, you know, our traditional get a sign and walk around, which can, they've picked that as well. But really, um, again, I think giving them voice and um, use of, you know, different arts mediums and social um, platforms has worked well for us. How about you, Rachel? We actually see our movement as deeply, deeply, deeply connected to movements of the past. You know, Dr. King went through a whole transformation right before he was killed where he realized it was way bigger than civil rights. And he realized that we needed to have, you know, ultimately this is about capitalism and about um, completely overturning the system and bringing poor people together across race in order to fight for capitalism to be overturned and, and to see common struggle. Our organization feels deeply connected to that vision. Um, you know, this year we released a political agenda called the Freedom Papers. We did so. We went basically knocked on thousands of doors in Florida talking to people about what their biggest issues were and um, what they saw as solutions. And we used that to create this visionary platform based on seven basic freedoms, basic human rights that we believe by the virtue of being born everybody deserves in this country. That vision is really about, it's an economic and a racial justice vision, just like Dr. King had an economic and a racial justice vision. So we feel deeply connected to that legacy. Um, it feels, um, I guess, yes, we have taken on the torch and we intend to pass it on because, you know, this is about protracted struggle, a long view of struggle. We know that these things are not going to change overnight and that we must build upon the legacy of our ancestors. And we are preparing to pass on a legacy to the next generation, too. Rachel, do you feel any tension between, um, you know, you're a fairly young organization working with, you know, and it's grassroots and not every social justice organization is a grassroots organization. We should mention that. It's a different thing to get down there on the ground and work out and work up than starting from top down going down. It's an entirely different thing, as we know. So I wonder if there's, as you've made your way, as the Dream Defenders have made their way, um, do you feel tension from folks who've done it one way and have been around and feel like they should, if not be the voices, be some of the prominent voices in the struggle? You know, I wouldn't say I so much feel a generational tension, but I do think there are tensions, and I think tensions sit across generations. We hold different politics in this movement, and there's sometimes young people who don't get what our, what we're doing. And then there's sometimes older people who don't get what we're doing. But I wouldn't say that it's so stark a line around generation because there are plenty of folks across generation who are completely politically aligned with our organization. And then there are older folks who aren't. So, again, I think it's more about the politics that people hold and that transcends organization than it is so much about the area you were born in. Do you feel a generational pull, um, Alexandra, with your group in the same way because you've maintained a grassroots approach? And that's not always, as I've said, something that's embraced by many people. Mm. <laughs> yes, mm. I would say that there is tension. Um, and, you know, in the past... Uh, 
present too. We've heard, you know, a number of comments. You know, we, we are producing angry young people. You know, and, and people that I think feel fear for the things that young people are doing and saying. And I would, I'm going to speak just um, around the Latino community specifically that I think we need to do a much better job of supporting our young people and making space for the next set of young people. I think, you know, we get set up in a certain way and we become that person that everybody goes to, to be on this, to be on that. And I feel there is tension around really making that space for young people. So I would say right here on the show that I encourage all of us, including myself, to really take a look at um, the young people who are the next generation, the next set of leaders, and that we need to be mentoring them and we need to be making that space for them. All right, let's take a listen to what I, we think is an almost prophetic excerpt from an early version of MLK's I Have a Dream speech about sacrifice and dedication to a cause. Even if he tries to kill you, you develop in a conviction that there are some things so dear, some things so precious, some things so eternally true that they're worth dying for. And I submit to you that if a man has not discovered something that he will die for, he isn't fit to live. That's Martin Luther King in an early version of his well-known I Have a Dream speech. You can hear the tension as he's trying to articulate, you know, his, his deep anguish about what's happening, but also about what is required of those who decide to be in civic engagement, who, who decide to get, put themselves out there. And I have to say, whenever I have conversations with people who are leading social justice organizations, you know, listeners want to know, why you? Why did you decide to make this your work? And in the wake of uh, listening to just that clip from um, Dr. King, Rachel, I'm going to start with you. Why did you engage in doing this work? It's hard. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, so I'm biracial. Um, my dad's black and my mom's Jewish, and I grew up in Oregon, a very, very white place. My dad was a heroin addict, and I really internalized that around his blackness. And I'm very racially ambiguous, and I just had a lot, a lot of shame around my blackness. And I just grew up always feeling like there was something wrong with me and having a lot of class shame and a lot of race shame. And I would lie to my peers about who my family was and who I was. Yeah, so I just grew up really running for myself for the sake of like, you know, quote unquote, fitting in. And it wasn't until I ended up getting a full scholarship to go to school in New York and I stumbled upon very randomly a James Baldwin class that completely changed my life. You know, I suddenly went from feeling like my entire life there was just like something deeply wrong with me that I couldn't quite pinpoint and I couldn't quite do away with to feeling like, oh, my God, there is nothing wrong with me. This like complete spiritual awakening. But there is a lot wrong with the world. And shortly mm. thereafter, I discovered organizing my dad. You know, once he got clean, he became, um, you know, he helped a lot of other people get clean in the community. He, you know, um, held N.A. meetings inside jails. Um, and I was very inspired by my father's legacy and seeing the way that he had his own personal transformation. And I felt deeply connected to that transformation and my own spiritual awakening that I had around my identity and my family. 
And, you know, once you see the truth, it's very hard to walk back from. I can't imagine doing anything else every day because doing anything else would feel like I'm contributing to the problem. I have a blindfold on. Like, I can't imagine having a job in corporate America. Like, I don't know what, I just don't know what that would look like for me because I just, you know, once you see the truth, you can't unsee it. And so I feel just so deeply honored that I get to do this for my job. You know, not everybody has the opportunity to get to be paid to do this work. But, you know, I'm not in it for the pay. I'm in this struggle sort of regardless. And and I and I'm committed to it for the rest of my life because there really is no other option. If you're not in the struggle, you're just struggling because you're still up against all the things that we're fighting against, even if you aren't actively fighting against them. So I'm committed to fighting because there really is no other path forward. That's Rachel Gilmer. She's co-director of the Dream Defenders, a Florida-based human rights organization. Same question to you, Alexandra. Why do you do this work? Um, I think similar reasons. I I am really honored to to be doing what I do, and I ha- get so much more than I could ever give. Um, and I'm really grateful to all the young people and all the families who've let me be a part of their life. Um, and again, a similar story: moving to Boston, just facing a lot of racial um, incidences, and really. Uh, being the only Latino family in our neighborhood um, and just really feeling the pain of that and not having uh, any other families to connect with or people to look up to, feeling that um, what I brought to the table in terms of being a Latina and speaking my language and celebrating my culture, there was nowhere to do that, and it was really seen as negative. Um, And it took a long time. When I graduated from college, I was fortunate to... um, work in a neighborhood organizing with young um, Latinos and the pride that they had in their culture and their language was really healing for me. Um, I had never experienced that before and I loved their passion and I fell in love with organizing and I fell in love with working with young people and I found an organization where that is my passion. I, in the work that I do at the end of the day, I am working with obviously a lot of other people, not just myself, that make it happen, but I'm working to create a space where culture and language are valued and seen as assets. Um, We used uh, Dr. Martin Luther King's assassination uh, 50 years ago as a marker to sort of look at a lot of these issues through his legacy. I I wonder if both of you would project forward 50 years and be aspirational about what you would hope to be seeing 50 years from now. Alexandra? Be seeing. Mm-hmm. Oh. Um, 50 years from now, I would love to see just more um, really equity um, and true equality. Um, I would like to see uh, policies that are reversed. I'd like to be able to walk into just as Boston as an, as an example and see like all of our public schools, um, you know, that are not segregated by race or income in our neighborhoods, that we would be living side by side together. I would love to see a space where our young men of color are not in jail um, and are not uh, being harassed and that they are policemen and firemen and, you know, working in the legislature. I'd love to see, uh, you know, politicians really be reflective of the community. I'd like to see 
uh, more boards, again, reflective of all of our communities, not just um, the Latino community. And for all, um, I'd love to, to go vote and see a ton of uh, people civically engaged and living in a country, in a society where we don't um, tweet things about people's race and ethnicity um, and where we're welcoming, to, truly welcoming to all people, no matter where they come from, what they identify as. Rachel, same question to you. You know, like society is at such a turning point right now and it feels like things just actually can't stay the same, like we're teetering on an edge. And I think they can either get far worse or they can get much better. And that is dependent on how we act in this moment. And so my vision 50 years from now is based on what we do in this moment, which is bringing, we gotta bring more and more people. People gotta come together and resist. And so what what I think is possible in 50 years is really anything so long as we fight for it. We could, you know, right now in Florida, we spend $50,000 to incarcerate young people every year and only $7,000 to educate them. In 50 years, I don't think we need any more youth jails. And we can have a robust education system that teaches young people their true history. We could have a world, um, you know, where where young people are able to live their wildest dreams and actually imagine the most for themselves, you know, becoming artists and creators. All, all of that is possible. We could have a world that's actually um, healthy and where we're in right relationship with the planet and not one based on war and, and environmental destruction. So all of this is possible, but what we need is yet people to join our movement. We need people to resist with us, and we need people to fight back. Well, thank you very much for joining me in this conversation about uh, carrying on Martin Luther King Jr.'s legacy 50 years after his assassination. Alexandra Oliver Davila is the executive director of Sociedad Latina, Boston's oldest Latino youth organization. And Rachel Gilmer is the co-director of Dream Defenders, a Florida-based human rights organization. Coming up, Boston is a city steeped in history. From Paul Revere to JFK, homage to American legends can be found at almost every turn, which makes it all the stranger most Bostonians don't know about the city's significant connection to one of the greatest men of the 20th century, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is a special episode of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. It's our third hour-long show in honor of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., 50 years after his assassination. This concluding hour, we've been focusing on how Reverend King's legacy has been carried on by a new generation. Now we'll discuss how a little-known piece of his history is being preserved for the generations of the future. The city of Boston plans to raise about $5 million for a memorial to Martin Luther King Jr. and his wife Coretta Scott King. But most Bostonians don't realize how deep the MLK-Boston connection really is. In the early 50s, King lived in segregated housing while earning his doctorate in theology at Boston University. He preached at local churches, played basketball on Columbus Avenue in his preacher's shoes. He met Coretta here while she was studying at the New England Conservatory of Music. 
But strangely, there are almost no markers of MLK's presence in Boston. That's why award-winning documentary filmmaker and journalist Clinton King made it his mission to highlight Reverend King's Boston years before they're completely lost to history. And Clinton King joins me now in the studio. Welcome, Clinton. Hi, Callie. How are you? Well, I'm so delighted to have this conversation with you. Thank so you. let's just talk about how it came to you that, wow, these places where Martin Luther King and Coretta Scott King lived, worked, uh, were not, not acknowledged. I mean, part of it is just a function. It's just, and it's just not Boston. It's all over the place. You know, King only lived five places in his entire life, beyond two months. Two were in New England. And um, most, most of them don't celebrate this, and particularly... Uh, the largest would have to be Boston. Boston is a, a large place, and yet there's very few in the way of, of, of markings. You know, the other thing, of course, is I come by my interest in Dr. King honestly because my father was his lawyer um, in the first major campaign after Montgomery in Albany, Georgia. And as a result, I'm always interested in, in anything about King. But when I got here seven years ago and found out there's virtually nothing short of Boston University and they, what they do, uh, I was quite taken aback. Well, let's unpack a little bit of that. First of all, locals call it Albany, Georgia. <laughs> and you I busted me. <laughs> yes, I did. And I know that because that was a big part of the series, a documentary series I worked on, Eyes on the Prize, about uh, civil rights history in the United States. And and that was one of the campaigns early on that actually was not successful, but began a, a series and a strategy of working very closely with people on the ground in the way that new organizations are doing now, um, understanding that that's really key to leave people behind organizing. You just don't sort of fly in and fly out. You make some connections. So with that with that as a context, um, I really want you to say a little bit more about your dad being um, lawyer to Reverend King. I mean, if I was a Martian that fell out of the sky and I was in Albany, um, <laughs> There are markings. There, there are landmarks. There, there's markings of landmarks of where Dr. King was, the significance of that movement, which is oftentimes by people there not thought of, Callie, as being a failure, mm -hmm. but rather as a university. It's where King cut his teeth. It's where he learned some important lessons so that a Birmingham could be successful, so that uh, a Selma could be successful, that a St. Augustine could be successful. It was there that he he really cut his teeth. And so that's what the locals like to, to view. But the other thing is, is that they do a pretty good job of telling uh, King's story and his time there, the eight or nine months that he was there in, in Albany, Georgia. And so uh, as for my father, my father was the only black lawyer uh, basically south of Atlanta. And Atlanta, be, I mean, Georgia being the largest state east of the Mississippi, uh, that was significant. He went to school. Um, he had to leave and go to the north to go to law school. And then he, uh, he met my mother in Cleveland, Ohio, and then went back down to his hometown of Albany, Georgia, where his, his family was fairly prominent. Uh, his father had extensive real estate holdings. He was a postman initially. Uh, he was a buggy man for Booker T. Washington and made his way through school and educated all seven of his sons. And one of them was the second black man to ever run for president of the United States. And there were others as well, but, but my father came back because he wanted to practice law there and because he was the only black lawyer there. 
Dr. King coming to town felt in. And his his name was C.B. King, just by the way, so people would, will know that. So now fast forward, and, you know, you come with that history, and you're here in Boston, and you know that in the hometown where, where your dad worked with Dr. King, there are plenty of markings, but here in Boston, nothing. And this was a very significant place for King and Coretta Scott King. That's right. <laughs> you know, about uh, in 2005, I came back to New England. I went to boarding school in New England, and part of the reason was because my father was a moving target, and he sent us to boarding school in Vermont. And I came back uh, some 25 years later because my kids wanted to go there. And one of the things I was impressed by was that there was a small community in Connecticut who actually was beginning to mark King's time in Connecticut, and that was Simsbury, Connecticut. That's where King basically came hoping to go to Morehouse. He didn't have the money. He was a son of a poor uh, black preacher in Atlanta, and he could work the tobacco fields, uh, the shade tobacco fields outside of Hartford and outside of Bradley Field specifically. And that's how he made his way to pay for the tuition room and board, not for one year, but for two years. And so he came back, and that was his first introduction in 1944. And in 1947, the summer of 47, uh, they basically made an arrangement that the, if the boys arrived uh, June 1 of that summer and stayed until August the 31st, then they could basically go and... Uh, he would send them back by train with tuition room and board. And that's what King did. So that was his first introduction. So when I was when I noted that that Simsbury, Connecticut marked his history, even though they burned down the, the Morehouse, which mm. was a dormitory, yet Boston didn't, I, I was taken aback. I gotta tell you, only because this place, number one, beats its chest, I think, mm. where it concerns history. Yes. And number two, it is home to the academy. In this country, hmm. there's no place that has more institutions than Boston, and yet it seems so. Of learning, yes, yeah. and higher education, yes, yes, you're right. Um, I'm speaking with Clennon King. He is a, a documentary filmmaker and journalist, and he's created the Martin Luther King Quiz. It's a question and answer quiz uh, asking those of us uh, to test our knowledge of what we know about uh uh, Martin Luther King and Coretta Scott King's uh, years in Boston. I want to play a, a clip from the quiz because, sadly, I didn't do well. <laughs> and so that says something as well. So here's a clip from uh, Clinton King's question and answer quiz from uh, the MLK Boston years. Reverend King never maintained a permanent residence in Roxbury. True or false? Press pause if you need more time. Answer. True. While initially Reverend King stayed at the home of 12th Baptist Church pastor William H. Hester at 38 Howland Street in Roxbury, he moved out in favor of finding an apartment closer to BU. However, to overcome the social isolation of attending a predominantly white institution in Boston, Reverend King did return to the same Roxbury neighborhood to pledge Alpha Phi Alpha fraternity. So you have a, a series of questions like that, um, which are fun to do. You got the little music going and, you know, you've given us even an out, like press pause to think about it. So sadly, I believe I got four, maybe five. Yeah, that's what? bad. Yeah, no, it's bad. No, I agree. Come on, Kelly. You're, you're, I, I mean, know, but you are so smart. Come on, no, knock no, it off. But you know what? And you went I, to Wellesley. Come I, on. I, I did, but I don't know the history of, I didn't know until now, the history of Boston and Curtis Scott King in Boston. I found I knew more about 
his history outside of Boston, which, of course, is your point. Right. (laughs) Exactly. I mean, you know, the fact of the matter is he leaves directly from Boston and goes to Montgomery, where he's already been going down there, already doing uh, pastoring, um, preaching, delivering sermons. And he enters the world stage directly from here. Um, He was not a player in terms of the fight for desegregation and all that. In this context, this place was something else for him, but it was a launching pad. It's, of course, as you know, where he met his wife, uh, perhaps the most important institution of all, marriage, um, and a number of other things. But, um, yeah, I, 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 yeah, I was, yeah, I didn't, I I was really shocked that, um, that, you know, that there was all of that. It took me a minute to go look and really read very closely between the lines to understand it. But that's a, a byproduct, I think, of being a journalist. Yeah, you know. no, of course. But so your timing is perfect because uh, not only does it recognize the 50 years, uh, it comes out in the 50 years since uh, King was assassinated, but at the same time, as you've noted in your quiz, uh, the city is about the business of raising $5 million to build a memorial for the same reasons you did your quiz, to make people understand what the Boston legacy is of Martin Luther King and Coretta Scott King. So I'm curious to know what kind of response have you gotten since the quiz has been out and you've been talking about it? Well, mm-hmm. I mean, the fact of the matter is I don't think it's it's widely known mm-hmm. that it's even out there, mm-hmm. but the reality was, and I think I was flattered at some level because MLK Boston, I think it's changed its name now, the entity that's putting up the monument, um, they invited me to make two presentations to them. And if these are the folk who are telling Dr. King's story and they don't know, and one of their advisors is a highly respected uh, Harvard professor who's an authority in this area, uh, they don't know the Boston story at a granular level, Mm -hmm. then, you know, I felt good. I I had to feel good about the fact that, you know, I was somehow making a difference and that they asked me uh, to not only um, present twice, but the other thing was that, they asked me as well to submit a proposal for a documentary about him. In the end, they, so, they chose someone else, mm-hmm. but they did ask me. And so I thought that was, that, that was significant. I would hope that uh, maybe what would come out of this after they've, because they're in the midst now of trying to choose which artists will represent the memorial, um, make this what you put together in this quiz, a walking tour that sort of accompanies it. So you can see that memorial and then you can follow all the places you mention in your quiz as, you know, part of one of some of the heritage heritage trail uh, tours that we already have. And I think it would be quite interesting because people don't know a lot of this. Yeah, I mean, that was one of the observations. I mean, my argument to them initially was that I thought that there was a stronger argument to have the monument uh, placed in South End. Mm. which is where he lived. The epicenter of uh, the black community was at Columbus and Mass Ave. Um, And it was there that the march started. It was there that he lived. uh, All three locations were a block, block and a half away, uh, including the first home site of where he and Coretta lived. Um, And so... um, That's not where it's going to be, by the way. No, it isn't. Yes, just so we be be clear. But I I guess I'm a little bit concerned that when people go and see these monuments mm-hmm. down at the common, that that story of where he was is not communicated. That's the beauty mm-hmm. of going uh, to the JFK birth home. Mm-hmm. You're there in the neighborhood where this man spent time, grew up. That neighborhood in Brookline is significant. Right. It says volumes, and I th- that was my argument to them. They obviously, you know, obviously they didn't that didn't win the day, but. 
But that's that's what I can I'm concerned about that people still walk away because I can't tell you, Callie, how many times I've been on the bus, especially in conversations with black children hmm. from Boston, and they have no idea that Dr. King was even here in Boston. And that's problematic to me, because if you don't know where you're from, you will not know where you're going. Which brings us back to why this isn't the legacy that you wanted to leave, that, you know, in the 50 years since he was assassinated, that this is something that you wanted to make sure endured. Right, mm-hmm. exactly. I mean, you know, I, again, I mean, that that is my argument in the end, because I don't, you know, I, you know, I live on uh, Monroe Street, uh, me and my fi- fiance. She's been there for 30 years. And she was here when King was here. Mm. Um, And so the bottom line, though, is she did not know that he made a visit to a school on our street. Wow. On our street in 1965. She would have been 10 years old at that point. In 1965, there was a school that Sarah Ann Shaw went to, um, that her daughter went to. And it was called the Boardman School. Well, if people don't know Sarah Ann Shaw, she was, uh, is a well-known journalist and one of the first uh, black journalists on the air at um, Channel 4. Right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the reality is is that people don't know that there are landmarks all around them. That, that, that place is also on the footprint of the Roxbury YMCA. And so they do a huge MLK program every year, but I thought it was important. Look, you got to know the man was on your footprint. You've got to communicate that to these these young people who, you know, who they serve. Well, speaking of 1965, uh, let's listen to an excerpt from Martin Luther King Jr.'s 1965 address to the Massachusetts State Legislature. I bet a lot of people don't know this. <laughs> no area of our country can boast of clean hands in the area of brotherhood and the estrangement of the races in the North can be as devastating as the segregation of the races in the South. So here he is in the Massachusetts State Legislature. Can't get any more Boston than that. (laughs) (laughs) I am not sure I have ever heard of that speech. So just as a way of circling back to say, you know, pretty knowledgeable about him outside of Boston, but not here. He spent about <laughs> 48 hours here uh, in 1965, in April of 65, and one of the first places he went was to the Capitol to meet with the governor. He was hoping his next stop, his next meeting was going to be with uh, Miss Hicks. Miss oh, Mar- Louise Day Hicks? Lu- Louise Day Hicks, and wow. she refused in the end. And the reason was because he insisted that there would be some locals in that meeting, and she only wanted to deal with him and him alone. And then from there, he immediately went to Roxbury, and he began going to these various locations uh, to sort of underscore the need for imbalance in schools, uh, for discrimination in terms of housing and other places. I didn't know that the MLK school in Roxbury or in Dorchester, as it were, he actually visited there. That's Mm -hmm. the reason they changed the name to his, his name. I had no idea about that, but there's a photograph, a very famous photograph mm. of him talking to people on the street from the front steps of that school that is now the Martin Luther King Jr. I think it's called Middle School. I think that's what it's called. Uh, just to be clear, if people don't know a little bit of Boston history, Louise Day Hicks uh, eventually became the person who was one of the leading voices against uh, busing and desegregation of schools in Boston. And um, ended up having quite a national reputation for being kind of the angry face of 
of, of that opposition. And uh, if you're just tuning in, I'm Callie Crossley, and you're listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, and my guest is Clinton King, and we're discussing Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s little-known Boston years. Um, I just want to add it's not in Boston, but just a few hours from here, the what was known as the um, the Civil Rights White House, I guess, was on Martha's Vineyard because Dr. King stayed there. That's right. Uh, so he, uh, lots of people th- said to him, this is a quiet place. You can sort of restore yourself. You can imagine he was a man under a great, uh, a lot of pressure. There was always the threat of assassination. We're having this conversation 50 years after his assassination. So he knew that and he lived with that. Um, and people introduced him to Martha's Vineyard. So there's another piece of the Massachusetts history that is connected to him. I didn't know that. <laughs> I just didn't know all the places in Boston. I had heard that, <laughs> yeah. and I've seen it in books, but not well documented. But I finally saw an article from the Pittsburgh Courier explaining that he was not able to go to Martha's Vineyard because he was in jail down in Albany, Georgia, which underscores the very thing that you just said. I mean, I had I didn't know that. I had yes, no idea. Yes. So he but when he but when he did go, he there is a house there that he stayed wow. in is now owned by uh, another African-American um, and and uh, people know it as that. So it's part that is part of the Heritage Trail on Martha's Vineyard, the African-American Heritage Trail. So. Uh, to your back to your point, the, the the heritage trail that you're sort of put together now um, in a platform that we can all touch uh, digitally, uh, I think should 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 be out here on the ground. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> um, you know, the thing for me, and I say this to you personally, and I was telling your uh, your producer this, and that was the fascinating connection to your alma mater in Wellesley oh, College. Oh, right. Now, I, now, okay, I'm embarrassed by this. I did not know. Everybody knows I graduated from Wellesley. If you, also, if you don't know, I'm on the board of trustees of Wellesley at this point. So I'm sort of Wellesley all in. But here's a piece of history you're about to share that I did not know. Go ahead. The woman's <laughs> name was Rosemary Ann Murphy. In 29, she arrives at, at Wellesley, and she gets a master's degree in physiology. Oh, okay. And then she all goes right. away for two years, and then joins the faculty at Wellesley to teach it. Okay. And she teaches from 1933 to 1938 for five years. And then she's accepted into the medical school at Boston University. And it's at there that after she graduates, she becomes an officer uh, of the class at uh, the medical school. She ends up uh, practicing medicine. And one of her first patients uh, is Dr. King. And he comes back to see her several times. And she worked for the Leahy Clinic wow. right on Commonwealth Avenue. But that is Wellesley's connection directly to King. And there's, there's, a letter, there's a letter she wrote to Dr. King about his health condition that is on the World Wide Web, that is, that is archived at, uh, at the, uh, the King Papers Project out in Stanford. Did she live long enough to, to understand to, or to see him become Martin Luther King capital letters? Or did she know him, you know, before all that happened? She, she <laughs> buried him in the end. And, yeah, she was... She was very, very prominent and highly respected. I saw the obituary, and it you know, itemized all of these things, her connection to Wellesley, everything. But I've been out to Wellesley, and I presented twice wow. documentary <laughs> films, and nobody has ever said anything about well, that. Well, we didn't, we didn't know, but now we know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, I'm uh, shocked and stunned, but not really surprised that someone with uh, an excellent skills would be treating <laughs> someone who would end up being... Um, well, really, a champion for for uh, civil rights and someone that the nation would respect, and a, and a national figure for all of us, yeah. and a local figure. Yeah. So let's talk about legacy in general, because um, put, if you will, 
the Boston legacy of Martin Luther King and Coretta Scott King within the context of the national one and 50 years after his assassination. As you think about that and think about why it's important for us to remember any of this stuff or remember who he was. Well, uh-huh. I, I think it's important in terms of making him an approachable human, especially for children, that, you know, like all of us, there was a developmental period. And, you know, we talked about the five cities that he lived in. He was born in Atlanta. He, again, spent those two summers in the tobacco fields outside of Hartford, Connecticut, in Simsbury. His next stop is going to be outside of Philadelphia. I was just talking to a guy who's a highly respected artist outside of Philly. He just did a book on King and had no idea that he spent two years in Chester, Pennsylvania, which is the equivalent of Quincy to Boston. Wow. It's a suburb. It's mm-hmm. where Crozier Seminary and where mm-hmm. he got his master's in divinity. He had no idea about mm-hmm. that. So Boston's not the only one who's, who's guilty of that. There's something about uh, knowing his very human story. Uh, so, in other di- words, he didn't. He wasn't born fully formed as, you know, the leader of the civil rights movement. That's right. And that you too could possibly right. do this. I mean, nobody mm-hmm. even knew that. I mean, the guy didn't even march in his graduation from yeah. here. I mean, most people didn't know that. And so, I just think that there's something to be said. I'm always attracted, Callie, to biography. Mm-hmm. I want to know where somebody is from. In your case, you know, I'm fascinated. You're from the place where he was killed yeah, in Memphis. That's true. that's true. I'm fascinated by that. What do you know about it? That's what I want to know. And I think that's true for any any subject I'm reading about. I want to know where they're from because it tells me a lot about, you know, you know, how they were marked and what their attitude will be. Um, it just infor- I think it informs. And so from that standpoint, I think that that's the last picture that we see of him before he enters the world stage and after that, you know, everybody mm-hmm. wants a piece of him. Well, thank you so much, Clint and King, uh, both you. for your, your quiz um, and keeping us uh, in touch with that history and also for joining me today. Thank you so much, Callie. I really appreciate it, as always. Clinton King is an Emmy-nominated journalist and a documentary filmmaker. He is the creator of the documentary Passage at St. Augustine, the 1964 Black Lives Matter movement that transformed America, which won the Henry Hampton Award for Excellence in Documentary Filmmaking at the 2015 Roxbury International Film Festival. You can request a viewing of Passage at St. Augustine at www.passageatstaugustine.com. Well, that's it for this special edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. In the meantime, you can find our show, links to stories we discussed today, and bonus content on the web at wgbh.org news. Listen to our show on the WGBH app and take UTR with you. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Be sure to connect with us on social media. Follow me on Twitter at Callie Crossley and like us at Facebook.com slash Under the Radar WGBH. Our engineer is Doug Sugarts. Francisca Monahan is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH.